Well met, and welcome to episode 165 of the Bill Shakespeare Project podcast for May the 24th, 2018. For our blog and previous podcast episodes, check us out at thebillshakespeareproject.com. Greetings, this is Bill Walthall, and man, has it been a long time, or what? One-third of the year has slipped by. In that time, I've been in two plays, taught a Shakespeare for Actors class, traveled to Cleveland to deliver a paper on Shakespeare and Westworld, had a horrible bout with the flu, and even a worse experience changing web hosts. But you know what? We're back, babies. And I've got something special for you to reward you for your patience. In this podcast, you get less of me and more of the pros. We've got an interview special. A couple of months back, my wife Lisa and I attended a performance of the Independent Shakespeare Company's production of All's Well That Ends Well. As you may know, these are the folks who put on the free Shakespeare in Griffith Park every summer in Los Angeles. Love their stuff. Well, a couple of months ago wasn't summer, but rather the launch of their new studio theater. And if that show wasn't good enough, and it was... There was something that made me audibly whoop the announcement that this summer they'd be cooking up a production of Titus Andronicus. Cooking up. See see what I did there? Anyway, last week I took a drive down to Los Angeles to that same studio theater, the green room for which was the location for the interview that follows. So without further ado about anything else, here is my conversation with Melissa Chalsma and David Melville, the artistic and managing directors respectively, of the Independent Shakespeare Company. All right, we're here with Independent Shakespeare Company's David Melville and Melissa Chalsma, uh, the artistic directors, and we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming season. So give us a preview. What's the upcoming season? Hello. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having us back. Thanks for coming, or thanks for allowing me to come back. There, there you go. Wait a minute. What's happening? Uh, our fire, we, we're, uh, we've got a interesting season coming up. We're doing uh, probably the two most diametrically opposed plays that Shakespeare wrote, Midsummer Night's Dream and Titus Andronicus. So we're, um, one of those is a play we've done numerous times and one of those is a play we've never done before. And I'll leave you to guess which is <laughs> which. Is which. Never done Midsummer before. Never done, but it's, it's, a, it's such an obscure play that we really were worried about doing that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we're really excited about working both on a play that we know and love and then also a play that we really don't know how it's all going to come together. Before we started talking, you were saying how the the choice of Titus was kind of a late addition and that there was uh, some question as to how to pull off the other play. Could you give us a little bit of background on what was going to be in that second slot and what were the production decisions that you made to not do it? Sure. Well, we, we announced last year that we were going to do Miss Nice Dream and Love's Labor's Lost. The previous season, we had Two Gentlemen of Rome and Measure for Measure, which are both, uh, you know, not as familiar titles to, you know, the average Shakespeare in the Park going audience. Um, that was the, normally we have like a sort of big star show like Miss Nice Dream, Twelfth Night, Romeo and Juliet. Richard Third. Richard Third, the Scottish Macbeth play. Um, this was the first season we'd had sort of two uh, sort of lesser-known titles, so you know uh, we'd had we had a little bit of a drop in audience, and I don't think it was entirely due to the, the uh, choice of titles. There's a lot else happening in the world that was 
distracting people's attention. Um, but anyways, we come out, came out of that with a thing, oh, well, you know, we really sort of uh, should come back with two strong titles. So we missed when I stream was going to cycle back anyway because it was about five years since we'd done it and we tend to do those shows in five years. Seven, actually. Or Is it really? Six, yeah. And then uh, uh, Love's Labour's Lost uh, was something that we've been wanting to come back to for, for a while. We've had a really successful production of it that had literally no press whatsoever. I think it was one of the best things that we've done. Um, you know, both in terms of the performances and the design and everything, it mm -hmm. just was it was really fun and uh, no coverage at all. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, we were looking forward to bringing that back in a way. Uh, but then we got to the beginning of this year, and we're looking at our budget and everything. And Love's Labour's the Lost is actually a huge show, which is very hard to uh, scale back if you need to. Um, you know, there's several different worlds in the play, which you can of course double. But then they all meet at the end. So, right. you know, if we were doing it in our indoor studio space here, we probably could get away with doing it with eight or nine people or something. Um, but on the big summer stage, that just isn't going to work. So I was sort of racking my brain about how to handle that uh, uh, while I was writing the budgets and started sort of thinking about, you know, every once in a while we'll go to the, you know, the first page of the folio and see, well, what are the ones <laughs> we haven't done again? And, uh, uh, just sort of saw Titus Andronicus and thought, well, you know, we thought about doing it once, but we thought it was going to sort of scare the audience away too much. Um, but then I just thought, well, what about it? And I just I, I, I opened it up on my laptop and started reading it. And then Melissa came in. She's this the, is a story she, that I feel he's invented because she, I have no memory of the story. She, she, when the legend becomes fact, yes. print the legend. That's right. Reading Titus Andronicus. She goes, why are you reading that? We're not doing that play. <laughs> and I don't know, I was just looking at it. And then she uh, went and had a cup of tea or something and then came back and said, well, what if we did do that play? <laughs> by the end of the day, Melissa had convinced herself that Titus was a brilliant idea. I hadn't even finished rereading it. Uh, and then she started announcing it to people. <laughs> and I guess we're doing it. Well, I know a good idea when I hear one. Absolutely. And it does seem to have caught people's imagination. So they're very excited when we say we're doing it um, in a way that perhaps they weren't, you know, when we said we were remounting Love's Labour's Lost. Mm. I know that when I was here to watch all's well and the announcement was made i kind of did a whoop and a and a holler so um it, it's actually one of my favorite plays just because it is twisted in a way that's both horrifying and comic mm -hmm. and so i'm wondering as a preview how are you going to balance those two i love it it's a tragedy that people expect comedy from because normally we do the tragedies and people aren't expecting the comedy and for the most part people are surprised and delighted but there's a few purists who get very upset about we can sort of make that language come alive and, and, and inspire laughter as well as you know all the other things that happen in the tragedy. But I don't know. What do you think, Melissa? I think it's an interesting play to do now because I think it's we're in a kind of community conversation about how we treat one another in a way that is very present, whether that's um, how women are treated or people of color or just the idea that there's a you know, a patriarchy that is, you know, is oppressive or has repercussions and the choices we've made have been really along one line, you know, all those kind of conversations. And I think in a lot of ways, the play is sort of about that because it's about, you know, an expectation of a certain mode of, you know, that Titus comes in expecting things are going to be a certain way. And then he, he sets aside, you know, it's like about this disruption that happens. And then um, I think in the violence in the play as, as a female, seems very, very male. 
Like it seems like a play that in some part, not to just, I mean, this is not going to make it, it's a play about toxic masculinity. Doesn't that sound like a laugh fest? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, th but in a lot of ways, I think it is about this kind of, you know, and, and Tamara certainly participates in that, but it's, it's about this kind of a desire for retribution and revenge that I think is a very um, interesting thing that I think that's happening now. And it's a play that sort of looks at how do you handle transgression. Now, that isn't, I mean, I think David is playing Titus, so I don't think I could um, smash the comedy out of David if I tried. I so, tried, when we did Iago, I tried to not be funny and people still laughed, so I don't know. You were pretty not funny, funny, though. You did a good job. But, I mean, there's a lot of comedy in that role, just even if you were reading it like a phone book. I mean, just some of the things he says in the context in which he says them, from an audience point of view, you're just kind of going, that's kind of funny what he's doing I, right I there. Think that's the no, thing I think is it's that, true. Is, yeah. it's the, if the audience are connecting with the irony uh, that's apparent to the characters in the play, it is funny. And it's working if you're making the language come alive. So exactly. Yes, but you also are able to put spins of comedy on things that typically wouldn't. I, I and sometimes it is true that it needs to be managed right. given what we're all designing as in that moment. Right. And I remember with Hamlet, you used to have, you know, Hamlet says, married with my uncle, my father's brother. And sometimes David early on would do married with my uncle, my father's brother. Like, you know, as though he would qualify it for the audience once in a while. And people, and then at a certain point it was sort of, well, maybe that's not really... Shakespeare's intent there, or right. is that really helping the, that that moment right. for clarity? So yes, I think then, sometimes it's dangerous. You do have, have a moment like with Gertrude when Hamlet says that talking about Guildenstern and Rosencrantz that I, you know, whom I will trust as I do adders fanged, and you know you make the image alive and the audience gets it and they see you know Guildenstern and Rosencrantz as these little snakes and they laugh and they're laughing right. because they're connecting with the image absolutely that's where I think yeah Melissa you're absolutely right I, you know I'm, I, saying, I'm um, just not saying it too I actually think that even in a play like Midsummer Night's Dream I remember the last time we did it which was I think in the park was 2012 and as you've been to the park so I think an outdoor summer audience like, they really right. want to laugh. They're right. there to have a fun, you know, so if you're giving a, and I remember with Midsummer Night's Dream last time, we would go backstage, and I and I was in it, and I had directed it, so uh, poor actors got, and they never got me to go away. <laughs> I was always <laughs> there. Um, but we would talk about, like, we can't get this laugh, because if we get this laugh here, the audience has released their laugh, and we can't get the big laugh. Right. Like, you have to actually parse out where you're letting the audience, because laughter is a tension release. I mean, mm -hmm. just naturally in your body, it's, you know, gets your breath going, and then you're overly oxygenated, and then, you know. It's like a thing of Shaw used to do this. You could always see with Shaw that, like, a moving scene is preceded a certain number of minutes by a funny scene, because if you can get the audience laughing and breathing, mm -hmm. then they're more likely to be moved, because they're breathing. So you can kind of, like, this little go rhythm to that. But sometimes in a comedy, if you get too many little laughs, you can't get the big laugh. Right. You can't get the big group laugh. Right. So you do, I, so I do think there is kind of an art to... You know, not getting every laugh right. that you can possibly get because it's exhausting. It's, it gets tiring and you release that kind of thread that you're creating to get the big. Exactly. So when you're. That didn't answer Titus yet, but no, that was but, kind of no, similarly in a way. It leads right into what I was about to ask then. You know, as a director, when you're looking through the script now, and I don't know where exactly in the process you are of, of that, mm -hmm. are you kind of mapping out where. Okay, this is where we can legitimately have a laugh, and mm -hmm. it doesn't spoil something later. 
Yes, and I also, yes, I do do that. There's one of the things we comfort ourselves in the theater is saying, oh, it's nervous laughter. But a lot of times it's just they're laughing at it because it's kind of hammy or whatever, you know what I mean? We do, but we tell ourselves, oh, they're just, they're uncomfortable. It's like, well, maybe it's because it's not really hitting authentically. And I think when you have violence, you have two choices. One is to do like, we're just going to go for the entertainment value and we're cutting off hands and legs and there's blood spurting and it's great if the audience laughs because it's all about this kind of abundance of gore. And there's certainly been productions of Titus where that's that's the goal, goal is you're kind of, mm -hmm. it's a horror comedy. But I think for me, I don't really like the idea of violence as strictly just entertainment. So I don't think I would have wanted to do this play if I had thought the only way to make it work is to do that. Because I, I don't think we're, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable kind of cheapening human life mm -hmm. in that way like I don't like that genre of films I don't like I just it just bothers me right it's violence violence is real you know it's serious stuff so I think we look at the play like that that there are certain scenes that are clearly comedic like there's a bit about whose hand is going to get cut off that is basically like a Laurel and Hardy skits mm -hmm. and then someone's hand get cut off so what's interesting is can you have the laugh and then have the sickening feeling of what it means to have your hand you know like how can you get those two things to right. sit next to each other in it, a way where they're each distinct like this beat is distinctly one thing and then it's next to, and that's you know next to something that's that's so i do th we do think about that and then in this play thinking about what is that we want to i mean people don't know the play there's sort of a horrific act against a young woman and i you know that, mm -hmm. that i don't think like, i wouldn't feel comfortable just playing that for like well, I, I, I don't yeah. know if you could play that for laughs. I mean, Or just as shocking. Oh, like, oh, titillate. Oh, like right, the, the, it's right. just violence on top of violence right. in order to provoke a sense of... Like it shouldn't just be shock value, right. I guess, okay. is what I'm saying. So, as, as David, you're going through the text, what is, it that you're, what, what is it that you're finding about the character that you hadn't anticipated? How many lines there are. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. It's Davey's been learning it. He's like, I gotta know soon when I'm playing because there's a lot. If it's Titus, there's yeah, you need to learn a lot of text. It was about the same size as the Duke last year. Which was a, it's that was it's, a surprisingly big part. Yeah. Um, I wasn't supposed to play Titus either, so I was going to direct it, and then the guy we had. He was going to direct it. I was going to be in it, and then it kind of. And then the guy that was going to be Titus got a job, a nice job somewhere. So. Um, I started thinking, well, who's going to do it? And then I started thinking I was a bit like Dick Cheney uh, doing his search committee uh, for <laughs> vice president. I came up hmm, with a list of one find? Who can I find? <laughs> There's um, only one man in all of Los Angeles. So as you're, as you're starting to go through the text, what did you find? The, is, there's a lot in it um, that, that sort of, I, I, I find sort of tones that you get in like some of the other characters that I've played, like Richard the Second and uh, Richard the Third, and um, those voices seem to be coming up, which just surprised me because it seemed you know, uh, sort of a proto yeah. King Lear yeah. or something. But but to have that, that's you know, his he 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 does sort of revert to lyricism very quickly in his despair, which mm -hmm. uh, uh, which I love. <laughs> um, uh, and has, you know, a naughty sense of irony in those really dramatic moments, the bit I'm sort of struggling with trying to learn at the moment is a bit about the, when Lavinia comes on and uh, he says, what, what hand has made you handless in my father's sight? Mm -hmm. And there's just the playing of that, you know, the, 
Do you think that's... I'm not sure you that. Because, he, I mean, it, there's... Yes, either it's the rhetoric, and that's all very interesting, and what a great writer. Or is that just not good writing? Uh, you know, because I find there are passages where I'm like, I just don't know well, if that think, is going to work. Yeah, is this Shakespeare or is it George Peel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Some you know, of it this, is a little. Yes, yeah, so a bit where he talks about his uh, uh, heart's lang- his heart's deep languor and his soul's sad tears, which doesn't sound very Shakespearean, right. you know, or at least maybe he's very young, but it could be George Peel, but. Um, I don't know. I mean, you think the challenge is, 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 is to make it work. You know, you're not going to, uh, unless you cut a line like that. But I, I, I like that line because I, I think it is, you know, to, to me, you can play with how a person in a, a, an extreme situation um, has a very surprising way of reacting to it. And, yeah. and, and, and it's clunky. It's like in Red Barn when Anne is saying, you know, uh, in the course of their intercourse um, it's a musical that we've been working on which is based on court transcripts of what people actually said 200 years ago so you're, you know, sometimes you're listening to you know, or, or, or working with dialogue that was transcribed from the courts so and people speak in odd ways when they're under pressure and right. I think that's something that happens with this character and, and, and he, you know, he does behave, you know, he goes off the rails and, and understandably so, I mean yeah. There's there's heaps heaps upon heaps of horrible things that are happening. Yeah, and Melissa's father is a psychiatrist, and uh, is he a psychiatrist? Psychologist. Psychologist, sorry. Um, and uh, when we first did Hamlet, I asked um, Bill uh, whether he thought Hamlet was mad when he'd seen our production, and uh, and he said, "Well, it's interesting. You know, it's, you know, I deal with people under you know difficult situations all the time, and the thing about Hamlet is." You can't really say whether he's mad or not because anyone in that extreme a situation is not going to behave ra- rationally. There is no mm-hmm. rationality at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the horror that this man's been through, he doesn't behave rationally. But what he does do has a certain amount of uh, uh, style and alarm. I love that he dresses up as a cook at the end. <laughs> he has a sense of humor about what he's doing. Yeah, then, then he does the most unforgivable thing in the play. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, which I just, it's fascinating to me. Right. And that wasn't a, you know, calm. I don't, I mean, there's so many things going on. Is it, it's an early play. In some ways, he's trying to create his own, you know, a classical play. What mm-hmm. to him, you know, he's really. We think of his plays as classical, but at the time, they, of course, he was just a playwright right. writing a version of a classical play with the added element that instead of having the blood offstage, which would have been the Greek way, the, oh, but Renaissance people delighted in blood, so put all the blood on stage. And so you have this kind of, in a sense, somebody exploring a style mm-hmm. while finding their own style as a writer that will eventually then become unique so it's kind of, sometimes I, I, I do read it and I think well why is that there and what is was that an effort to do it you know to be a certain way and would he have done this the same way you know 15 years on or right. 10 years on because exactly. certainly his plays got much more full of nuance I would say like you know there's there's elements of nuance in Titus Andronicus but one wouldn't argue I don't think anyone could argue it's it's primary, you know, a play like All's Well That Ends Well, it's almost its primacy as nuance. Right. That, that we're talking about situations where people are parsing very finely. Oh, and that as an audience member, you're parsing it very finely. 
that is not the experience of watching Titus. Well, it's like he's writing to a, a commission or Hamlet is, you know, than actually, you know, for something that he himself wants to bring to the stage. So I'm sure there was a producer that said, uh, More blood, please. Yeah, go with George Peel. I want to play. I want hands cut off, tongues cut out, rape. Uh, just, you know, go as big as you can because, you know, uh, Marlowe's just done ever the second and, you know, that guy having it's a... It's going to more, more, yeah. more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and if we can cap it off with cannibalism, all the better. All the better. Yes. yes. Yeah. It really is a there's plain a, excess. There's a version <laughs> I've been looking at by, by this guy, Ravenscroft. Uh, who in the 1680s, I think he, he rather like Sibber did with Richard III, he made his own version of it. Or, but he, for the most part, he, he stuck to Shakespeare, he just edited it uh, quite a bit. And, but he does change the end, and he has Aaron's baby killed, and then Aaron decides to eat the baby at the end. Which is what? Like, what? what? Okay, that's just like, now that's just really not necessary. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessary. Oh, I thought or the ending was bad there. enough as it is. Jeez. <laughs> it could get worse. Could yes, it? you didn't think it could get worse. I know. Now it has that, that, suddenly. That should be part of an epilogue. You know, if you think this is bad. You know? Yes. <laughs> if you thought that was bad, that was oh, hard to take. Now, earlier we talked a little bit about one of the reasons why you moved to Titus from Love's Labor's Lost was the size of the cast. How much doubling do you see happening in Titus? Uh, well, Melissa's still working on the edit, so I think okay. that some of it can get boiled down into, you know, some characters can sort of become one character. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the trouble is that there's all the sons who, uh, you know, you can't really reduce those numbers. Uh, but the, but a lot of them get killed in the first half and then can occur as characters in the second half. So it does seem right. to be written, actually, with that pretty much in mind. mind. Um, I think we're getting was down to about fifteen or sixteen at the moment. That's good. Okay. We'll probably have a couple of supernumeraries. Got it. Um, Selected from the audience, which means yes, to be sacrificed. A lot of us is, is uh, <laughs> thrown in the fire. Yeah. There's yeah. a body burning within like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and and hacked to pieces. Yeah. Hacked to pieces and thrown. And was I was saying yesterday that we should get some barbecues going backstage and put some pork chops on when that happens, but Melissa thought that was a good idea. Just bring some fans out to blow the, <laughs> yeah. the smell the into the smell. audience. Okay, and you were you were talking a little bit about how you weren't the first choice to be Titus, yeah. and that choice got offered something else. I've, I've always kind of wondered, is there, for lack of a better term, an acting company for independent Shakespeare, and how far in advance do you need to know from your actors that they're not going to be available for the summer or for an all's what all or something like that? I would say we have a core ensemble. You know, we sort of don't have, you know, company meetings every month. And right. No, you know, nobody, there's no... It's a benevolent dictatorship. Well, right, you're going to put it that way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so we have certain actors that we work with, and I would say it, it is sort of who we all share a point of view about the kind of work we want to do mm -hmm. more than anything. I mean, it's really a collective of people who both value the style in which we work and also the mission which we espouse as an organization. So um, I would say it depends on the play. Titus was interesting because it was a little bit later. 
much more typically, when I'm thinking about what plays I would like to produce, and David maybe has a different way of thinking about it, I have thought of who's going to play the critical roles. Mm -hmm. And frequently, there are certain plays that in my mind I think, oh, I, want, I would love this person to explore this role or do this role. And if they weren't available, I wouldn't do the play. And that's happened a couple of times where we've changed casts. We've changed what we're doing because mm -hmm. somebody becomes unavailable. So with a play like Titus, normally I think we would have, had we been thinking about it longer, we would have thought through a little more who would play Titus, right? I think so. But then it was kind of, I looked at it over David's shoulder and irrationally decided within 20 minutes that, not having reread it, that that is the play we should do. And then, so it maybe wasn't quite as decided, but I think, you know, for example, when we were doing Romeo and Juliet, I really knew who I thought I'd like to play Romeo and Juliet. Last year, picked Measure for Measure in large part because I wanted to see Colleen play Isabella. Okay. Um, so for me, a lot of it is, is very tied to specific performers because I think one of the things that I enjoy the most is watching people develop over time. And then there's times where you have a play in mind and, and somebody isn't available and you put someone else in and you're like, just absolutely delightful. I was the first time we did Love's Labor's Lost. I was supposed to play the princess. I ended up having to direct another play that some. I don't know. Somehow I ended up having to not do the show. It was trauma and upset involved, and then suddenly I was I couldn't really act and direct. And so uh, Aisha, who's one of our core members, played it. And I remember sitting in the audience watching it and being so ecstatic. I wasn't playing it because I was so mm -hmm. happy to see her playing it. I was so in love with her performance that in that role, and um, so sometimes you're just surprised. But I do think going in, I usually I usually have a pretty clear idea of the key players. So Titus is a bit of an outlier that we hadn't really yeah. settled it. Like we hadn't really, right? I mean, I would say that wouldn't be typical. Yeah. If we were doing Hamlet, I wouldn't announce Hamlet without already knowing who was going to play Hamlet. Right. For example, I would. Although we did with Tempest, we didn't really have a Prospero when we started. When, yes, when we that happens, yeah. So it does happen, I would yeah. say, but more often than not, it's because there's a core of people, we have sort of ideas. You know, when would you begin rehearsals for Titus? So around the f beginning of June? Yeah, well, Midsummer Night's Dream will rehearse beginning of June, and that will go up first. And then once that is on stage, you know, has his first performance on a Saturday, and then Tuesday we'll start rehearsing Titus while Midsummer is performing. It's a little difficult to do that. Now, I was looking at the schedule, and, and maybe I, I got it wrong, but it looked to be, for a period of time, it seemed to be almost rep. I it mean, is rep. Go but, back yeah. and forth mm -hmm. between the two. Set-wise, are they similar? Have they been designed in such a way that you can do both at the same time? It will be, uh so it, I think there'll be some minimal changes, um, but it'll be a, I guess, what's that called? A module or something? A unit set. A unit set. For both plays, really, yeah. Which is kind of what we do normally. We do, don't usually change too much. We might right. paint it or, you know, do something. So we'll see. Hopefully we can, I mean, I think with the costumes, we'll create differentiation. The lighting mm -hmm. can create differentiation. And then elements of the set can change as long as it's simple enough. Um, I think I was a little concerned. Audiences love rap because it's fun, you know, it's fun mm -hmm. and it's, you can get kind of compare two plays or if you come and you see one thing and it was really fun, you don't have to wait to see another thing or, you know, right. and also um, Titus is really not necessarily what one would call a play for young children. 
And about yeah. 20% of our audience is under 18. And so, you know, obviously teenagers are going to be fine at Titus. But um, I think for I was a little hesitant to sort of cancel families out altogether for half the summer, like for younger children. So will there be less, fewer performances of Titus than, say, Love's Labor's Lost would have been? I don't know. Is it? The second show always has a few fewer for whatever reason. Yeah, one of them runs. Or does it have more? Uh, it depends. It's changed every year. Yeah, so, I guess that's true. So I don't know. It's hard to answer that question. But certainly it's, you know, Midsummer's Dream is going to play for um, quite a few more performances than Titus. Mm -hmm. And we do those. We've added Wednesday nights now over the last couple of years. So um, that's been interesting, uh, seeing how that's working out because... LA theatre audiences are not used to going to the theatre on a Wednesday. It's a very good night to go to the theatre. And and there was lots of parking last year when we went on a Wednesday. So night. much yeah. parking. Yeah, it's just like wow, so this is great. Nice, yeah. So uh, so we're hoping to you know get people into the habit of doing that. It's you know currently it's just really split our third Thursday audience. So rather than having you know six hundred people on Thursday, we have three hundred people on Wednesday and three hundred on Thursday. Um, but we're hoping that that will build. We certainly want to stick with that because uh, I don't know when people decided that the theatre going should just be this long weekend in LA. But it's you know it's I think it's it's a cycle that has had its time. Right. I know the um, I think the last time we went to a weekend performance was season before last, and it was just so packed. It was just like okay, during the summer we can we can go during a weeknight, and it's it's much more comfortable. Um, what if you start to see huge crowds even on a Thursday or a Wednesday? Tuesdays. Okay. Um, you'll, you know, because you'll have huge crowds for Titus, you know, just. <laughs> Do you think? Every, every, every twisted person in Los Angeles will show up. That's and there's a lot of good. twisted people. How do we reach them? Yeah, interesting. Are they all yeah. theater crowds? I don't know. What's the Venn diagram? It's kind of like the, 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 <laughs> Twisted people as theater. If you're making an independent movie, the surest way to get an audience is to make a horror film. And that's, you know, how right. filmmakers get started because uh -huh. it's the most easy thing to sell. So who knows? Maybe that will happen. So how do you sell it to the public? Mm. Well, we don't have a lot of money even to produce the actual plays. So, you know, the marketing park department always gets stiffed when it comes to, you know, we can write the budget and go, oh, well, $50,000 to do banner ads on the streets and buses and, you know, and, and that always gets whittled away to, you know, we'll, we'll mail out a postcard and... Um, it's been, our growth really has been through word of mouth yeah. as been when we survey people that's the number one way they've heard about it um, and I do think people I think typically like half the people in a given summer have been before and half are new which is a pretty healthy yeah, ratio that's great growth and I think people are bringing bringing new people and um, but it's you know it would be a lot easier if we could afford sides of buses we do a lot on social great. media. I mean, yeah, like we do do Facebook, a lot. Instagram stuff. We have quite a wide reach there. Um, a few moments ago, you mentioned the the mission of the company. What is that mission, and and how did you guys develop it? You're the keeper of the mission, Melissa. I'm the keeper of the mission. <laughs> We're seeing, testing it. No, our um, the classical plays are a shared cultural legacy and belong to everybody. 
everybody should access, have access to the great works of theater, and that there is no greater cause than to grow theater-going audi theater audiences. So it's those sort of three things, um, I think, were the pillars, I guess, of, of our work. And then um, we're just always looking for ways to make plays um, more accessible, whether that's something that the play itself, so how do you make a play that the most number of people can enter into imaginatively, mm -hmm. um, but it also means how do you make performances that are easily available to people and that feel welcoming to people who may not be theater goers, because I think for those of us that go to the theater, you think, if we think through all the conventions that go along with that, we're all very comfortable with them, but if you're somebody that doesn't go to the theater, those conventions might be mysterious, right. and so you feel sort of like, wait, I don't know that I want to go into this dark space and sit quiet like why is everyone suddenly talking softly and you know it becomes this it's a very different thing and I think one of the things that's been the best about the park is that I mean it's of course it's fun it's outside that's great free is good but that we've also been able to create an atmosphere that as Dave likes to point out is kind of almost a sort of life of its own out in the audience where suddenly people are sharing and what kind of cheese is that you have and oh you know asking each other questions and interacting in kind of interesting ways and I think that for me is always really um almost the most rewarding thing is to walk through an audience and just see people interacting with one another mm -hmm. not just the people they came with but right. with everyone or noticing you know different things or coming up on stage or um and so I think that's been um the most important part of the work in the summer has been that it kind of is creating this event that the whole community can participate in. And it also is saying quite clearly that great art belongs to everybody. Now, it, it seems to me that, you know, by doing or even considering doing Love's Labor's Lost and All's Well and this year Titus, that there's also an effort being made to open up the canon as well. Because I know, you know, I'm from Ventura County, and when Shakespeare gets done there, it's, you know, one of basically three plays. Mm -hmm. And we we want to expand it. But it's it. never a Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Oh, never. That's never and, and, and never Twelfth Night. You know? Never Twelfth Night. Never. <laughs> never the Scottish play. You know? I mean, and they the are very plays. good plays. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but there's only so many times you can see them without one of the first things in your mind sitting down is, okay, how is this one going to be different? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think you make a big mistake when you assume that the audience can't handle things. You know, I think that I have, I have one of our sort of core values is that they, that our audience is intelligent and discerning. Right. Like every member of them and, and that you have to treat them with that kind of respect because, you know, I think people know when they've just been given a, you know, you know if you're just being given something like candy versus right. like, sandwich i don't know that's a terrible yeah. analogy but do you know what i mean i mean I think yeah, that, that people want to be challenged and they want to be engaged and they and they can handle more than just those three plays, those, those three plays. but people are scared because you want to get people to come in the door. right but how will people know that they will enjoy coming through the door unless it's presented to them you know it's it's mm -hmm. kind of a catch-22 right and i mean the the summer shows for you guys have kind of become kind of a, a, a city institution. And so it's really neat to see that part of the mission get pushed forward because, you know, if a small community theater in Ventura County does Titus, it's like, okay, 
A, very few people are going to go, and B, you won't have expanded your audience much. Whereas for here, mm. suddenly, you know, when you're doing All's Well, when you're doing uh, Titus, suddenly these are new titles that people aren't seeing, mm. and it's like, oh, okay, now that it says by Shakespeare, it's I know it's not going to be, you know, A, B, or C. Right. So. Yeah, the, I mean, the dichotomy for us is that you know, we, we survive on those large audience numbers. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, you know, we, we don't charge for tickets, but we do take donations. And, you know, if there's 2,000 people there, then uh, we'll manage to make it through for the next week. But if there's only 300 people in the audience, then uh, that presents us with a problem. So, you know, we have to balance mm -hmm. uh, our desire to want to do them. And nothing would give me greater pleasure than to do Henry VI Part One as a standalone in the park, because I think that would just go gangbusters. I mean, it would be so much fun, mm -hmm. it's a great play, but um, uh, I don't know that it's gonna get an audience. So, but you can do it if if, if, if it's being buoyed along by a Midsummer Night's Dream, which is kind right. of what we've done with Titus, is right. the second half, you know, as Titus sort of goes into its run, Midsummer Night's Dream is gonna be there on a Sunday night or a Saturday night, so, right. you know, that we're, we're, we do have a constant flow of audience that's, and, and then maybe they're thinking, well, well, let's come back tomorrow and see this this other play. That sounds like fun. Exactly. Just like this one with fairies and music <laughs> and laughter. Yeah. Oh, it's and love. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. next year maybe it'll be, you know, last year you came for the cannibalism. This year, come for Joan of Arc being burned at the stake. Exactly, so, yeah. There you go. It's all There's good. your barbecue moment. There. <laughs> see? It all comes around. Um so as, as we begin to wrap this up, is there anything that you would like people to know uh, going into the summer season or just in general about uh, the ISC? Um, if you come to the park with a picnic, the bees really like chicken. So don't bring chicken. <laughs> bring the chicken. Take the chicken out after dark. Or take the chicken out after dark when the bees go to sleep. Yeah. It's curious that... Small, but important. Well, yeah. We'll have a, but anyway, but that's part of it. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's it, it's really easy for people to sit out there in the audience and think that it's all been taken care of because mm. it looks like there's lots of lights and costumes and everything. I mean, I, I can't stress enough how fragile our operation is and how we really do need people's support. Um, and, and it's nice that you refer to it as a city institution, but we're not there yet. I mean institutions have institutional support and where uh, we really rely on the grassroots, you know, five, ten dollars thrown in the bucket or donated online or um, so, you know, part of the problem that we have is as, as we grow and we look more successful every year, um, that we have to struggle with the fact that that makes people feel that it's it has its momentum. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's such a bore to be constantly fundraising. Uh, it would be so much nicer to be in the room making art, but our jobs are, you know, 60% just uh, asking people for money the whole time. And that's what makes it um, makes it possible for us to offer it for free. But, you know, you have to put up with me saying stuff like that. <laughs> I think there's been something very, it's been very organic how the company's grown. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, with some of the, like the Broad or something, you know, Broad writes a check and then all of a sudden there's theatre or the Wallace Sandberg Centre for Performing Arts, you know, you know, it's great that there's that funding that goes into that 
but it comes with a, a you know a, a lot of momentum behind it. ISC was started by Melissa and me. Melissa was working as an adjunct professor, and I was working as a waiter. Um, you know, for the first ten years, you know, we didn't receive any salary. We ran it out of our garage, um, and uh, so uh, that over the years, it's had that kind of slow but organic growth that that that, that wasn't sort of intentional in the way that, you know, say a, a, a city in the Midwest would decide they need a Shakespeare festival and right. they'd form, you know, all the local dignitaries would form board of directors and they'd raise $8 million and all of a sudden, you know, you'd have this thing. You know, for us, it's it's just grown slowly out of this little troop that we started and, and it's become this this thing. But and, and I think part of what's really great about it is that that's, given us this sense of community and that we that it belongs to all of us not just you know those of us in the driving seat but at the same time that's also the thing that contributes to its 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 you know fragility all right well thank you very much for uh on that note well happy note well go see the plays i mean and then donate at the end um thanks again for having me in Thank you. And, um, Thank you so much. It's almost a, you, you wrote one of our all-time favorite reviews we've ever received. Which was? From Measure for Measure. But how it, it made you feel like you got a big wet kiss, turned around, and slapped in the ass on the way out. <laughs> but that is exactly the kind of theater I want to produce. And, 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 so and, and that's what happens when you write the review when you get home that night. You know? so, that sounds like a fun night at the theater. I, I, I can't wait to see what, it, what I'm going to feel like after Titus. So. All right, well, thanks again. And, Thank you. Uh, you know, break a leg this season. Thank you Thank so you much. much. We'll bro. see you there. So thanks again to Melissa and David for carving out some time for this interview. I cannot wait to see what they do with Titus. Shakespeare fans, need a poster to hang in your room? Teachers, need some nifty handouts for your students to peruse as you introduce them to the bard? Or are you just in the mood for some printable versions of some of the cool infographics found on this website? Well, regardless of how you answered those questions, I've got a scratch for that itch, a solution for that problem. Check out the Bill Shakespeare Project page on the Teachers Pay Teachers website. You can find character maps for Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar previewing the characters and their relationships to one another. I've also got geographical maps so your students can wrap their heads around travels within the plays Troilus and Cressida. Yes, even TNC get some love. All's well that ends well as well. See what I did there? Plus Pericles and Othello. There's also handouts on the so-called history in Macbeth and Julius Caesar, time in Romeo and Juliet, and violence in Titus Andronicus. Also, you'll find entire packets of handouts for both King Lear and Macbeth, including scene-by-scene -scene timelines and the interactions as well as relationships between the characters. And I'll be adding even more soon. Plus, this is where you can find the printable version of the new and improved periodic table of Shakespeare. Some of these are for free, and some are for purchase, but all can be found on the Bill Shakespeare Project page on TeachersPayTeachers.com. Oh, and if you want to purchase a pre-printed poster-sized version of that periodic table, well then head on over to the Bill Shakespeare Project page on Redbubble.com. Links to both of these sites can be found in the left-hand margin of this website. 
Now, this is the point in the podcast where I usually say that if you've enjoyed this podcast, but you haven't been following along with our daily blog entries, you've missed out on subjects including, well, this time there's four months worth of content missing. Well, not really, because I didn't post every day. Heck, I have posted almost nothing for the last fortnight. So I'm not going to bore you with the past, but I am going to ponder the future. While I may get back to reading and discussing, I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. I am now, for the first time, taking two master's program courses this term. That's going to make me a little preoccupied. Then we've got the capstone beginning in July. Plus, if things work out, I'll be heading back into the classroom full-time in the fall. My application is in, and hopefully I'll get hired. Needless to say, that will make a difference in my ability to make daily entries. So, where do I go from here? Well, I've got two productions, directorially speaking, in my head. The Comedy of Errors and Titus. I'm thinking of documenting my preparation for directing either or both of those. Not that I've been given the go-ahead or anything, just prepping in my head. And I've got a couple of folks that I'd like to interview, so maybe the blog becomes more of a theatrical, dramaturgical chapbook for the next couple of months, while the podcasts become specials, interviews, reviews, etc. I'm even considering of turning this week in Shakespeare News Review podcast into a video series. But what do you think? Let me know in the comment thread of this podcast. And in the meantime, check out the blog entries at thebillshakespeareproject.com or become a fan of our Facebook page and our Twitter and Instagram feeds. Remember that those social media outlets are more for Shakespeare news and notes than for discussions of, well, whatever we're studying at the moment. Also, if you have any question or comment about this or any other Bill Shakespeare Project podcast or blog entry, you can always lob me an email at bill at thebillshakespeareproject.com. And join us again for our next podcast when, who knows? Regardless, I hope to see you then. been listening to the Bill Shakespeare Project podcast for May the 24th, 2018. For our blog and previous podcast episodes, check us out at thebillshakespeareproject.com, and we shall see thee anon.